Well, I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. If you don't know where the book of Haggai is, go to your table of contents. It's going to be the best way because Haggai is one of the shortest books in the entire Old Testament. And we've been in this series for the last three weeks looking at the book of Haggai under the heading, Consider Your Ways and uh, choosing God's business over our own. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, make sure you stop and grab that pew Bible and uh, open to page 791. 791, you'll find our passage before you. Now, I know it's summertime, and some of you have been in and out, and so I just want to give a very, just a two-minute uh, um, update as to where we've been uh, so far in this study. Over these last three weeks, we have learned much about the obscure time in Israel's history, the times and days of the book of Haggai. And over these weeks, we've come to know that the times of Haggai were times for the nation of Israel of return and restoration. After 70, nearly 70 years under the rule and captivity of the Babylonian Empire, uh, the people of God uh, were not released until the Babylonians were captured and overtaken by the Persian Empire. And God would use the overtaking of the Babylonians by the Persians to move in the king of Persia's heart to allow whatever Jew would like to return to his homeland to do so as long as they were willing to see to it that the temple of Jerusalem was rebuilt. And so here's this new king who has just taken over the people that were in charge of the Israelites, the Babylonians up to that point, and the king of Persia moved by the Spirit of God for really a wide, a vast array of reasons. It wasn't that he was a God-fearing king, but God had moved in his heart that the temple in Jerusalem needed to be rebuilt. The king raises up funds, and he calls all to be a part of going and rebuilding it. 50,000 of the sum, a couple million people that were in captivity as Israelites in Babylon would go back and rebuild the temple. They were excited about this. They had the opportunity with all the resources they needed. The king of Persia gave them to rebuild the temple. And upon arriving in Jerusalem, they begin the process of clearing the rubble that had been left by the invading army of the Babylonians some 70 years beforehand and they begin to set the foundation and as they set the foundation all of a sudden for whatever reason the work stops and the temple would remain unfinished for 16 long years people would go about doing their own things pursuing their own priorities and focuses all the while the house of God and the business of God was left unfinished so for 16 long years God, after 16 long years, God would send a messenger to both the leaders and the people of Israel. And he would do so through the messenger and prophet Haggai. And the book of Haggai is broken into four messages that God shares through the prophet Haggai. And we've taken a week each week to look at one of those messages. The first message had to do with the people and their priorities. And we talked about how our priority needs to be centered on God. The second one had to do with the perspective that the people had with regards to the work that they were doing for God. That even though from an external standpoint it looked like it wasn't doing much, that God was going to do great things through the work of their hands. And today we focus in on the theme of purity and how we as God's people, even though we're involved in a godly pursuit and endeavor, that purity must be inward 
as well as outward. All of these messages, and we'll have one more message next week, all of these messages happen in a short amount of time. The first message comes in August of 520 B.C. The final message would come in December of 520 B.C. And we are told that 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 takes place, of course, in, in a matter of four months. And so here we have before us the third message that God shares through Haggai. And I'm going to ask that you would stand as we read that message in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures there were but 10. When one came to the wine vet to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all your products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since that day, that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day, I will bless you. Father God, we come before you and we praise your name. Lord, bring to remembrance the words that we've just sung that you are holy, you are right, you are good. And Lord, we need you. Every hour, we need you. We need you, Lord, because we're a sinful people. We're broken. We're stubborn. We choose to go our own ways. And Lord, because of that, we are an unholy people. But Lord, we desire with all our hearts to have fellowship with a holy God. And so, Lord, we need to understand how we can receive purity because, Lord, without purity, we will never be able to pursue the joy and the contentment and peace that comes your way. That we will never experience the life of abundance that you allow for your people to have when we walk in purity. Oh, Lord, that we would seek your kingdom this morning. But not only your kingdom, but as your son so aptly preached in a sermon on the mount, that we would seek your kingdom and its righteousness. Lord, we need your righteousness, and Lord, we need your spirit to guide us in this truth of this scripture this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. You may be seated. 
If I was to ask you this morning, how many of you desire to be happy, I believe that many of you would say yes. In fact, I would check uh, your mental status, your emotional status, if you were to say that you didn't want to be happy. Because the very fabric of who we are, happiness is something that everybody seemingly wants. As a result of that, if you look at our lives, we spend much attention and put much attention and time on the issue of pursuing happiness, whether it's in our work, whether it's in our lives as a family, whether we see it uh, in our leisure time, we want to be happy. When we aren't happy, we long and dream about it. When we are happy, we do all that we can to strive with great fervor to keep the happiness that we have. Happiness is a part of the American culture. And for many reasons, we wonder why that's the case. Apart from many other countries, happiness is something that we have as, if you will, a badge of honor that we are called to pursue. And one of the reasons, I believe, is because it was founded into the very fabric of us as a country. Our forefathers told us that we have the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so we pursue that happiness, and yet here's the inevitable problem. What is happiness? What does this happiness look like? The world tells us that happiness is found when we get everything that we want. I can be happy when I have all that I can ever desire or want. And so the world tells you you need to pursue prestige and power, pleasure and possessions. And when you pursue those four things, happiness is found. And until you find those things, you need to walk over whomever you have to to get to that life of happiness. Now, while that is understood from a world standpoint, it's easy to see that through the world's advertisements, from the world's media and all of that. We understand that that is their pursuit. The sad thing is, is that, that many Christians today are just adding a Christian spin to that type of world philosophy. Sadly, much of what I see in Christian bookstores and even on the Christian music stations today is this overwhelming desire that God has for us to be happy. That God's number one goal in creating us, in making us, was for us to be a happy and a uh, happy-filled people, if you will. Uh, this is seen throughout, uh, like I said, many books. In fact, just a couple years ago, uh, the pastor of the largest church in the United States, Joel Osteen, wrote a book that would uh, captivate uh, the world. It was called Your Best Life Now. Five million copies have been sold uh, to date. And in this book, uh, it speaks about the idea of how to find real happiness. Hailed by Christians and non-Christians alike, this is the, uh, if you will, magnum opus of how to find real happiness in this world. Now he would go on and say, and some have asked, you know, have you read this book? Yes, I have read the book. And in the book you will see it full of Christian themes and a smattering of scriptures on every page. But here is the problem. With all due respect, Joel Osteen, you paint a picture that God is all about you. Village Bible Church, let me make something abundantly clear this morning. God is not about you. He is about himself. 
And we need to recognize that because if you think God is all about you, you make God into the celestial Santa Claus instead of being a God who is jealous about his glory and that he deserves all the praise, honor, and glory that comes his way. And if we're pursuing something else other than God, then we've made an idol unto ourselves. Now, Pastor Osteen says that uh, because God is all about what you are doing, and he's worried about your happiness, God has given you by faith the ability to change your life from being mundane to magnificent. He tells you in the seven chapters or the seven key uh, themes that he has in the book that by using positive thinking, And speaking faith-filled words, you have the power to have your best life now, a life that is full of happiness. Now, sadly, I have to disagree to the entirety of this book because this book paints a picture that does not square up with Scripture. And I know some of you may have even read this book and mind find an affinity with Joel Osteen, and I will say, redo your thinking with regards to that because it goes against the God of Scripture, that God is uniquely concerned not about our happiness, but about our holiness. And that if we truly want to find happiness, then we need to not read books that revolve around us, but we need to hear statements like that of the word of the Westminster Confession of Faith that tells us that our chief goal in life, the chief end of man, our number one priority, they say, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our goal. That's what will bring real happiness. Our happiness is not God's goal for us. Our holiness is. And when we live lives of holiness, when we seek first God and his kingdom, when we see everything through his eyes and we live every aspect of our lives going through his ways, not our own, then God says then and only then will you experience your best life now. Now you say, Tim, is there a difference? There absolutely is. Because for us to experience our best life now means you and I must go through God, not ourselves. And God has a word as to how you and I can experience this best life now, and it is totally contradictory to the way the world thinks it gets its best life. So let's look at it this morning. The first thing I want you to see is that there's a concept for us to remember. A concept for us to remember. Starting in verse 11, God shares through Haggai a message to a specific group of people. And that is the priest. He's going to speak to his, if you will, middle management. And he's got two hypothetical questions that are going to strike at the core of who the people are. God puts his priest on record and he says, I've got two questions. The first one, write this down, has to do with a person's sanctification. A person's sanctification. Here's the question. Notice with me in verse 11. He goes and he says the following. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. 
Now, I don't have anything to display for you, and the only thing I could think of was I, I always carry a, a little hanky to wipe my brow. I don't have hair to catch all my sweat, and so I have to wipe my brow. But in the Old Testament days, an object would be made holy by being presented before a priest uh, to be consecrated for holy use. And so I go to a priest in Old Testament days, and I say, well, I'm a, I'm a preacher of the word of God, and, and because I need to be holy, would you uh, uh, consecrate this piece of linen for me that I wipe my brow with? Now, many things were consecrated. Animals that were to be sacrificed were consecrated. Items that were placed into the temple were, sacri- uh, uh, were consecrated, uh, were made holy. And the question is, is if the priest was to make this uh, napkin holy, and I take it and I put the napkin into my pocket, does it then make my trousers holy as well? Meaning, does because a holy thing, does it because it's holy when it touches anything else become holy? When I take this napkin and I wipe my brow, does it make my brow holy? The answer to the question, according to the law in the book of Leviticus, they answer correctly and say, no. Now, we'll get to the lessons from this in a moment. But notice the second question he asks. The second question he asks is is an issue of contamination. And notice the question there involves uh, an issue of someone who is ceremonially clean. Back in Old Testament days, a person could become clean uh, that is set apart for holy use. A priest would be ceremonially made clean by following certain rules and rituals so that they might be ready to present sacrifices before the Lord. And once they were made clean, they needed to stay out of contact with all other unclean things. And so notice what the question then becomes in verse 13. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And so here I am, I was clean, but I've made myself unclean. The scripture says I cannot touch a dead body, it makes me ceremonially unclean. So if I have touched a dead body, now I am unclean. Now, when I touch this napkin or I touch one of you, does it make this napkin unclean? Does it make the person unclean? And their answer is yes. Now, by looking at some of you, you're like, holy cow, what are you talking about? And the reason why is we don't understand the idea of being ceremonial clean and unclean. We live in a time of grace. We live in a New Testament pattern of living. And so many of, much of this doesn't make much sense to us. But understand what God is bringing up to the priest is a question of sanctification and contamination. And let me explain a couple things. Write these down because this will help you to understand it. What are these questions trying to teach us? Number one, the first lesson that it's trying to teach us is that holiness isn't contagious, but sin is. Holiness isn't contagious, but sin is. Now, let's bring, it to, let's bring those two questions to today's application. You are struggling with the flu. You've got a runny nose, you've got a headache, you're running a fever, you're having all kinds of intestinal distress. I mean, you're getting nailed by the flu. And you see me right now, you're sitting in the pew and you're dying right now, and you're struggling with the flu, 
and you see me, and I'll tell you right now, I'm healthy. I'm feeling good. I'm going to spend some time with my family this week away from home. It's going to be a good week. I am feeling healthy, as healthy as I've felt in a long time. You say as a sick person, well, what I'll do is I'll hang with Tim. And by hanging with Tim, my headache will be gone, my fever will be gone, the chills will be gone, all of that garbage going on down here, that will be gone. Because a healthy person always makes a sick person well. Correct? No. That's question number one. Now question number two comes in and it says, what happens, what can happen when you with the flu start hanging out with me, a healthy individual? The answer is what happens? I get sick, right? A couple days from now, after you've come and you've said, oh, Pastor Tim, what a great message up and close and personal, and you're breathing on me, and you're sniffling next to me, and you're shaking my hand. A couple days from now, I run the risk of getting sick as well. Take it to a spiritual aspect. Holiness is not contagious, but sin is. Now, this speaks to a couple people. First of all, it speaks to the person who is hanging in our midst today, who is here thinking your very, very presence sitting in this place is somehow making you holy. Well, you're going to get to heaven, and what's your, what's your answer to God going to be when he says, why should you be allowed into heaven? Well, I was at church every Sunday. That Village Bible Church, good place. I, I had a place in the pew. I served in the nursery. I went to small group. And so God, look, I did this, 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 and this. I hung around godly people, and because of that, I'm holy. God's answer to you will be the same answer that the priest had. No, it doesn't make you any more holy. Now, I want to be very clear. Does that mean that you cannot, in fact, have positive change and impact by hanging around godly people? Yes, yes you can. But not to the point of being made holy and righteous before God. That's why we need God's grace and mercy in our lives. The second thing we need to understand is, if I can't transfer holiness as easily as, I can as sin can be transferred, then what in the world am I doing hanging out in this world? If this world is sick and it's dealing with this ailment of sin and they are completely contagious and I, a holy individual, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, what in the world am I doing here hanging out with the world? Because I can catch what they have. What do I do with that? Well, here's the first thing you can do. You can go, and on Amazon, I checked this out, you can buy a human bubble, okay? And you can do that. They come in all sizes where you literally fill up a bubble where you put yourself into, and that takes care of the holiness issue. Because what it will keep you from having to deal with is all of the illnesses and sicknesses of the world. And spiritually, we can put ourselves in a spiritual bubble where we have no contact or as little of contact with the outside world as possible. And some of you, some of you are doing that without even knowing it for the sake of protection. You're saying, well, I just don't want that sin, and so I'm going to do all that I can to bubble myself away from this world to not be forced to have to deal with the possible contagion that is out there. Here's the problem. If that's what Christ, if that's what God wanted us to do, then the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior, God would have raptured you right to heaven. Okay? And he didn't do that. 
Okay? And so then if he didn't do that, and the good portion of the New Testament tells us to go and engage the world, then God, how do we engage the world without getting sick? How do we engage the world without becoming sinful? The best way I can illustrate it is this. And I talked with uh, my doctor some months ago about this when I was having a visit. I said, in the heart of a flu and cold season, I asked my doctor sitting there, I said, how do you not get sick? Every day you come and you talk with people and they're slobbering and sneezing and doing all this garbage and you're checking them, you're up close and personal. How in the world don't you do that? How do you not get sick? And his answer was, is by making sure I'm as healthy as possible that when I come into contact with people that my antibodies are at their fullest level so I can be a blessing to the sick person without carrying their illness with me. He also says, if you notice, every time I meet with anybody or touch anything, I'm going and I'm washing my hands. I'm doing everything I can to prevent that contagion from hitting me. Brothers and sisters, here is what we need to learn. Sin is always more contagious than holiness is. And so when you are hanging out with unbelieving family and friends and coworkers and all that, there's a better chance that you will become contagious with their illness than they will of your holiness. And so what that means is you need to be like the doctor. And here you need to understand that you are a doctor of God's. God has left you in this world, and he's given you one prescription that you were to write, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everywhere you go, whenever you're in contact with anybody, you're just pulling out your prescription pad and saying, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God can save you. Christ has come that you might have life and have it in abundance. And you just keep writing that prescription. But wait a minute, Tim. They're sick and I could get sick. Yep. And that means you need to be daily building up healthy spiritual antibodies so that you can go out into the sick world and share Christ. Don't put yourself in a bubble. Do what you need to to build the antibodies that even when the world is running amuck around you, that you might be a bright light and a doctor in a world of sick people. This is what Haggai, through the Spirit of God, is trying to communicate to the people in Israel's day. Holiness isn't contagious, but sin is. Number two, The thing you need to understand about this concept that he brings forth is that we must understand that no matter how great the ministry you're involved in, how godly the project is, if you lack holiness, God isn't in it. What an absolutely incredible statement for your pastor. I love preaching God's word. I love serving you. I love it. It's outstanding. It is one of the greatest desires I have. I never thought it would be. I never planned on it being. But my goodness, I fell in love with it. But I have to constantly ask the question, did I fall in love with serving my God or just doing ministry? Recently, I had a meeting with a man who was struggling in his role of ministry, a young man, charismatic and great leadership gifts and all of that. And uh, his ministry personally was falling apart. The ministry as a whole was going well. 
but he was really dying on the vine, and he wanted to, to meet with me and talk to me. I'd never met him before. In fact, he was from uh, the uh, mountainous uh, west of, of Colorado, I believe, is where the church was at. And in having a conversation with him, at one point in the message, I asked the question, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? It sure doesn't seem like it. And you know what his response was? I don't think so. I said, dude, you're a pastor of a church of 1,500 people. How can you not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? He says, I have no desire to spend time with Jesus. I preach sermons. I lead people. Well, how did you get here? How in the world did you get to this spot? Well, people told me I was a good leader. And people told me that, that uh, I preached really good years ago as a teenager, and so, so I thought I would do that, and I, I've made a good living doing so. And here's the thing. If your heart's not in it, if you're pure, not pure, if God is not the reason why you're doing what you are doing with regards to religious activity, you're doing it for naught. You may be building an organization, and we talked about that, and I was so thankful that I could speak into it. By the way, that man's no longer in ministry, and rightly so, because how can a leader of a church not have his own relationship with God in order? And so here's the thing we got to know. Some of you right now are engaged in religious activity. You're here today because that's what your parents taught you to do, and it's just a part of habit. Or maybe you're serving today because you're really good at it. I have to constantly check my, my heart to ask the question, am I doing this because of a life of gratitude of what Christ has done for me, or is it because I like to stand up in front of all you guys and talk? It makes me feel good. It, it, it helps my personality to, to be able to stand and, and, and let you guys, man, you, it can work your ego real good right now. Man, you get to listen to me. I'm the one who gets to talk. People fill two services so that they can listen to me talk. That, that helps an ego. If that's what my heart is, and then God's not in this. The third thing I want you to see, the third point of this is that when God shares this with the people, He's saying the, this thing. Holiness must saturate every aspect of your life. What that means is that we must allow as believers our walk with Christ to be integral to all fabric of our lives. While we may have many spokes that go out into what we call our life, the spoke of work, the spoke of, of living in a neighborhood, the spoke of family, the spoke of, of marriage, the spoke of college and school and, and leisure activities, the hub of all of those spokes must be a pursuit of God's holiness in our lives. So we begin from that hub. How do I make my marriage healthy and holy? From the holiness of God. How do I do it in my workplace? How do I do it in my leisure? It all comes from that central point, God's holiness and my pursuit of it. And so I begin there, and it begins to saturate every part of my life. Here's what the people were thinking. Because they made yearly sacrifice, because they were building a uh, temple unto God, they thought that those two activities were making them holy. God says, I am not in your religious projects unless it's a part of the very essence of who you are. 
Now let me tell you how it works out in a contemporary standpoint. Some of you have come today after living the last six days on your own, pursuing your own desires, your own wants, your own pursuits, and you want God to bless it, and so you show up here and say, if I show up and I'm a part of this, then God will bless my other six days. God says, you're wasting your time. Go watch a sport on TV. Go mow your grass because what you're doing here is an absolute waste of time if your heart's not in it, if it is not coming from a place of purity in pursuing him. Holiness must saturate everything we do. It must saturate the way we use our time, the way we use our energy, the way we use our money, the way we use the gifts God has given us. It must become all-encompassing. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, God doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. He wants all of it. And if you're not going to give him all of it, then don't give him some of it. It must be there. Now, this truth, man, it is so easy to preach. It is hard to live. And the people in Haggai's day were struggling with this. They were struggling to understand that to pursue holiness would mean more about the inward than the outward. And so you know what happened? We see God comes in and notice the consequences that not only they received, but we can receive as well. Because the people had allowed ministry to become a mechanism towards holiness, because they had put their holiness into their own hands, they had fallen prey to the, the idea and thoughts of the builders of the Tower of Babel. Now, the builders of the Tower of Babel had started with a good plan. We want to build a, temp, a, a tower to God. You could do a lot worse things. Here's the problem. They tried to do it in their own strength. They said, let us build this temple. Let us do it with our own hands. And God says, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And he brought consequences onto those builders. And in the people in Haggai's day, and us today, who are prone to make it without God, we are prone to make ourselves holy through our own strength. When we choose to live without God in our lives, God will bring consequences. He does so in the book of Haggai, and he does today. These consequences, by the way, are called God's discipline. They're called God's discipline, and the Bible speaks of this, and we see the discipline in the life of the Israelites. Now, there's a couple things I want you to understand about this discipline. Number one, it comes as a result of our faithlessness. If you are going to grow holy through God's discipline, then you must make a clear distinction about the discipline God brings. Because if we lack a clear picture of who God is, then his discipline will look as if he is a God who is performing spiritual child abuse on us as children. Here's what I mean by that. If we see ourselves as good, then when God says, you're not good, and I'm going to discipline you to get you to a place of holiness, we will see God as one who is only trying to, if you will, push his weight around on a smaller person. Like an abusive father, we see a God who is, is, is finding himself just pouring out his anger because it makes him feel powerful. That's not what God is doing. You see, discipline is not abuse. It is affection. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. When you see God as a 
all-loving God, yes, but an all-holy, all-pure, all-righteous God, a God who is righteous in all his judgments. When we see a God who has to be totally separate from sin, engaging us, a sinner, what then happens? God has two choices. A God who hates sin can destroy us. That's option number one. We become an object of God's wrath. But because of God's grace and his infinite mercy upon us, God says, I won't destroy you, I will discipline you. That's the same answer that you and I have as earthly fathers and mothers. We can take the attitude, I brought you into this world, now I'm going to take you out. Okay? Or we can say, I'm going to love you, and in spite of your sin and wrongdoing, I am going to discipline you towards righteousness. When we see God as that, then we see his discipline as beautiful, as right, and as good. That that rod of correction will show us our error. Why does God do it? He does it because he loves us. He does it because he has great compassion for us. God, the book of Hebrews tells us, disciplines those whom he loves. And so when God does that, he does it for a reason. Why do I discipline my sons? I discipline them for a couple of reasons. Number one, I love them. And I want them to see the error of their ways. I want to correct wrong thinking and wrong action. And, and discipline, just so you know, is, is the moving of the guardrails to send you in the right direction. And so I do that because I love them. Number two, I do it, I discipline them so that nobody else has to. You see, I, I told my, my sons one time, the reason why your dad disciplines you is so that a man with a badge and a gun doesn't have to. And your father loves you a whole lot more than they're going to love you. And so I think you would rather have a loving father discipline you than someone who's just going to put you in jail. You see, God disciplines us as our heavenly father because he loves us. And number two, so that nobody else has to do the disciplining. Let me tell you something. There's another person who would love to get his hands on you. He's called the devil. And we sang about it. I, I hope, you know, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I hope you understand the words that you sing. Because in one of the lines, and I don't remember the song that it was in, but, but it says that the only thing he wants is to harm you. And so the only thing the devil wants to do is destroy you. He's a thief. He comes to destroy your life. He's the murderer. And that's how he's going to bring his discipline into your lives. And so what we need to welcome is the discipline of God. Because if we don't welcome God's discipline, then we're welcoming the devil's discipline. And I would rather have a loving father discipline me to grow me than an enemy of mine to discipline me to destroy me. This is an important truth. Now, let me just bring this to a, another practical thing. This is why we, we, we do church discipline. It's not popular. We did church discipline on a gentleman in our church uh, some months ago, and we lost people as a result of that. I don't know if you know that or not. Some people said, if that's what you're going to do, I'm not going to be a part of your church. It's unpopular. But the reason why we discipline in the church is because we love 
the wandering individual, the wandering Christian, and we who love you and, and, and are accountable to watch over you, show you that discipline so that the devil doesn't have to. This is why this is all important. Now notice, all of this is because we are faithless people. The discipline that God's going to put in the lives of the people of Haggai is a discipline because of love, but because of their faithless. Notice this discipline, i got to get moving here, is seen in its futility. Notice verses 15 through 19. You're going to see the futility of it. Notice what happens. I'm on the wrong page here. Verse 15 now then, consider from this day onward, before the stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When you came uh, to a heap of 20 measures, there was only 10. When you came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there was only 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and hail. And notice the stubbornness of the people, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Do you want to understand how God disciplines? God disciplines in when you pursue something and you only get half. The clearest way to understand God's discipline today is some of you are wanting the abundant life, but you're trying to get it on your own. And you're wondering, why am I not happy? Why am I not filled with joy? Why am I not filled with the, 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 the contentment that God brings? Because God is saying, you're not pursuing me. You're not turning to me. You're turning to possessions. You're turning to your house, your car, the things, the money in your bank account. You're pursuing the friends of this world. You're not pursuing me. And as a result of that, you're not getting what you want. You're not getting what you should in return. And as a result of that, the futility of these people's lives was seen clearly as a result of the discipline of God. Each time they went and only got a portion was a reminder for them to turn to God. That emptiness in your heart this morning, brothers and sisters, is a reminder for you to turn back to God. Notice finally, discipline is never fun, but always fruitful. It's never fun, but always fruitful. I'm just going to read a scripture and let you hear this and make this a reminder. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 14. Just listen to these words. Write that down. Hebrews 12, 5 through 14. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father did not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child, and you are not his son. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. I remember those painful days. I remember when my father put me over his knee. I remember those days. They weren't fun. They were painful. They weren't pleasant, the scripture says. But notice... 
But later, that discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that the lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Discipline isn't fun. And some of you are experiencing it now, but it is glorious and gracious because it is always fruitful. So what does it then lead us to? What does discipline lead us to? Hebrews says it leads us to holiness, and that's what Haggai says. Let me close with this. Stick with me for a couple minutes. We see a call for a return back to God. God uses the futility of their lives to send them a message. Return to me. Turn back to me. And notice it begins by, first of all, evaluating our lives. You want your best life now? Start evaluating your life. Three times in our passage, consider your ways. Take an inventory. Evaluate your life. Set to your heart. Focus your attention to this one thing. Am I walking in purity with my God? Peter tells us in his second letter that we are to be all the more diligent to make our calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, he says, you will never fail. We need to take as Christians frequent inventory of our lives. How do we do that? Let me just ask some questions here in your own heart. Here's a spiritual inventory. Number one, do I spend frequent time alone with God in his word and in prayer? Number two, do I immediately confess any known sin and turn from it in genuine repentance without blaming others or giving excuses? Do I build into my life protection and accountability in order not to make any provision for the sins that so easily entangle me. Number four, do I memorize and meditate on scriptures that will keep me from temptation and sin? Number five, am I completely truthful and trustworthy in my closest relationships or do I put on a mask of hypocrisy through deception. Six, is my love for Jesus Christ fervent and vital because I meditate and think often on what Christ did for me on the cross? Number seven, do I truly want God's blessing on my life, on my family, and on my ministry that he has entrusted to me? If my answer is yes to that question, then Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's anything sinful in me. And lead me to the everlasting way. That is what we need to begin with. We begin with doing a spiritual inventory of our lives. Number two, you want your best life now? It begins by doing an inventory, and then number two, by embracing. Help me out here, Dennis. We've got the, the first one there. Evaluating our lives, and number two, by embracing God's way. It says to consider. To consider means there are two options. For there to be two options, there must be a decision to make one. Here's your decision. We've used these doors as a, a metaphor, a word picture, an illustration. Here's the decision you need to make this week. 
After taking spiritual inventory this morning of your purity before God, the question you have to ask yourself this morning is, am I going to go my way or God's way? In my workplace, am I going to go my way or God's way? With my family, am I going to go my way or God's way? With my mouth, am I going to go my way or God's way? With the use of my money, my way or God's way? With the use of my time, my way or God's way? God is asking the question of his people today, consider what way are you going to go? Joshua said, choose this day whom you are going to serve. This week, brothers and sisters, are you going to choose God or are you going to choose self? God says, embrace my way. Because when we evaluate our lives and pursue purity and we embrace the ways of God, not our ways, notice the very last phrase in this verse, but from this day on. I will bless you. Let me just take a poll very quickly this morning. How many of you want God's blessing in your life? I'm just looking. Does anybody not want God's blessing? I should have done that. Does anybody not want God's blessing in their life? You're in the wrong place if that's the case. You want God's blessing? You want your best life now? Don't pursue the world's way of getting it. Don't pursue a perverse Christianity's way of getting to it. Pursue holiness and purity, and righteousness. And when you do that, on that moment that you say, God, I will choose to follow you. I will choose to do it your way, not my own. God says, from that day on, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you all that you need for life and godliness. God said through his son, Jesus Christ, seek first my kingdom and its righteousness. And all these things, all your worries, all your concerns, all your struggles, all that you have anxiety about will be added to you. They'll be taken care of when we pursue holiness. You want your best life now? Your best life now begins with holiness. Happiness, there's a saying for you. Put this uh, in your notes. Happiness always begins with holiness. So let's pursue that holiness so that we may be happy In Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and I thank you for the truth there in it. And Lord, I pray that because of our desire, because of our culture and its pursuit of of happiness, that we would first of all know that happiness comes from holiness. But Lord, we're a sinful people, we're a broken people, and Lord, we need your spirit to, to do some work in our hearts. So Lord, do some inventory in each of our hearts. Have us ask the hard questions. Lord, allow your word to separate the joints from the marrow to to, to be that double-edged sword in our lives. Lord, allow the Spirit to give up close and personal with some of the decisions and some of the actions that we've made in this previous week. And Lord, let us be quick to confess them because you are utterly faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, let us choose today as we go into a new work week, as we go into a world filled with debauchery and sin, that we would not put a bubble around us and become ineffective in the gospel message, but that we'd be so ready to go to work, to go to school, to go to the activities of a day, that we'd be so healthy that we could go to a sick world and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that that would become our our mission, our drive, our focus. 
that we would embrace your way of living life and not our own. Lord, then you promise that you will bless us, that you will, your spirit will be with us. You promise us great and glorious things. We want your blessing, Lord, but we know that we can only receive your blessing when we live holy lives because you are holy. So, Lord, fill us with your spirit to do so because apart from you, we can do nothing. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings you are showering upon us in spite of ourselves. Let us live in the truth of that reality. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.